Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are in Idaho this week. Idaho, Lando Potatoes. Hey, Nicole. Yeah? Two sacks of potatoes are standing on the street corner. Which one does the cop arrest? I don't, I don't know which one. The one that says Idaho on it. <laughs> so dumb, but so it's bad. so bad. I was told that by my friend's <laughs> grandmother in high school. Oh, it still makes me laugh, though. So. I know, it's great. Yeah, so Idaho, I feel like it's best known for its potatoes. Like, everyone's like, that, Idaho potato, right? That's what I know about Idaho. So you'd think it would be, like, the potato state, but it turns out, like, we have been egregiously misled about Idaho and potatoes, man. Really? Yes. Potatoes aren't even its biggest, like, export, by the way. What? I know, right? You figure, like, all the taters in the, in the country are grown in Idaho, but that's not the case. Idaho is actually called the gem state. The gem state, okay. Yes, the gem state. And it turns out that like precious and semi-precious stones are really one of its top exports. It produces 72 different types. Wow. Yeah. Uh, It also is one of only two places in the world where you can find the star garnet. And it's Idaho and India, the only places you can harvest and and mine star garnets, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Interesting. Okay. Apparently, Idaho actually supplies a majority of the nation's trout as well. So if you ever at a restaurant, Bonefish, I'm looking at you, and you see trout and you order it, it's probably from Idaho. Well, that won't happen because I hate fish, but... (gasps) I love fish, Eden. I guess I won't be taking you to Bonefish. Nope. My sister worked (laughs) there for a little bit. I'll tell you what, what, they have great cocktails. Yeah, I'll lure you. I'll lure you with cocktails, and then I think my ex worked there for a little bit too, <laughs> but I don't remember because that was a long ass time ago. Fun. Let's see what else about the great state of Idaho? Well, this is interesting. So when you look at it on the map, it's like part of those western states that look kind of big, but like it's hard to understand scale on a flat map. I think. So I did a little digging, and it turns out that Idaho is bigger than all of the New England states combined. So that's Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. Bigger than all those states. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. The gem state is a huge place. It's weird when looking at Idaho on a map because of like just the weird ass shape of it, especially since everything over there is a giant rectangle. Um, It just looks like it was supposed to be a rectangle and someone took a bite out of it. It was actually. Really? Yeah, before it became a state back when all of that area was kind of just considered like the Western territories, uh, it was supposed to be square. And then some movers and shakers uh, decided to expand Montana, I think, is or is it South Dakota that's next to Montana? Montana and Wyoming, I know, touch on it. Whatever its neighboring state is, they basically claimed part of the upper part of the square so that it could like keep together certain areas of land. Okay. Yeah, it was supposed to be a square. I didn't read too much about it because I was like, supposed to be a square. Boring. <laughs> Who wants to read about squares? Well, now it's unique and beautiful, just like the people <laughs> in it, I'm sure. <laughs> Other fun facts. So this is super interesting. When you think about amazing, big, natural gorges in the U.S., I always think of like the Grand Canyon as like the big one, right? Yeah, It's like huge. Of it's called fucking Grand, right? 
Well, it turns out that Hell's Canyon in western Idaho is actually the deepest river gorge in North America. Well, duh, it goes to hell, I mean. <laughs> and hell's apparently 8,000 feet deep. Wow. Yeah. Uh, for comparison, the Grand Canyon is only 6,000 feet deep. So it's it's like, it's a gorge. Wow. So deep. So deep. Just like Tori Amos. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yep, gonna let that one sit there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Idaho is split into two time zones. It's one of the 13 states in the U.S. that have two time zones. Uh, the interesting thing is that a majority of the state falls into mountain time, and it's really only a small portion of the western area above the Salmon River that is on the Pacific time zone. Okay. Speaking of uniquely Idahoan things... The Idaho State Capitol building is the only one in the U.S. that uses geothermal energy to heat itself. Well, I mean, if they have that many precious stones. Well, it's not just precious stones. Apparently, it's hot springs. Get your hot springs. Idaho has tons of hot springs. And above the Capitol in Boise, about 3,000 feet underground is a very large hot spring that generates this geothermal energy. And the State Capitol and about 200 homes nearby have captured that heat to benefit and basically have green temperatures what i want to live there now yeah isn't I that want cool? to go to there geothermal energy man it's amazing uh i've never spoken knowingly to someone from idaho but apparently i may have and just not known it <laughs> i don't think i've ever known anyone from idaho so well you wouldn't know it because apparently they have the most neutral dialect of any state in the u.s Really? Hmm. Yep. They have no discernible accent. They have no state-specific language quirks. So it's usually the ideal testing ground for surveys and language products. Uh, it also has a lot of telemarketing centers as well because you can't tell where they're calling it from. Yeah. Okay. And then one delightful first about Idaho. It was the home of the first ski lift. Really? Okay. So the Union Pacific Railroad felt that the slopes of the Sun Valley in Idaho would be really attractive to skiers to get their winter snow fix since the ski the ski season was extended in that part of Idaho. So one of their engineers came up with the chairlift concept in 1936, and he modeled it on the banana hooks that he saw that used to carry fruit off of boats, and he used that design to create the first ski lift. Interesting. All right. I've never been in a ski lift because I refuse, but they seem really, really scary. I feel like some of the parks, like, I feel like Dorney Park and the San Diego Zoo, they have, like, ski lift type things. Really? Where, like, comes hmm. behind you and it, like, scoops you up. I don't know. I've only ever been to Dorney Park, like, maybe three times. Good for you. Yeah, I always went to Hershey <laughs> if I was going to go to a park that was somewhat local. Yeah, I've been on ski lifts, never with skis on. I feel like it would be a whole different thing to try to hop onto a ski lift with like skis strapped to my feet. But I have been oh, yeah. on ski lifts when I've gone to, you know, mountain coasters, alpine coasters and things like that. I've never skied just because I, I'm sure I will break something. I do not want that in my life. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not a skier, but I will go and ride like on the luges in the summertime <laughs> for the alpine slides. So, like, <laughs> that works for me. That's my that's my speed on a mountain. But yeah, that that is my fun fact cavalcade for Idaho, the gem state. I just want to like, 
I just like pictured their flag with like gem and the holograms on it. Oh my god, it's really outrageous. Truly outrageous state. Well, thank you for that, Nicole. Lots of things that we know now about Idaho beyond potatoes. Mm-hmm. I guess I will dive into my story if I can click on it. There we go. My story for this week takes place in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which has a population of 62,888 people as of 2018, making it the largest city in Idaho outside of the Boise metropolitan area. It also has an area of 24.55 square miles. It is situated in Bonneville County, which shares a border with what I believe would be Wyoming. It's hard to tell on a map when you're looking at counties because you can't see the other state. It is home to the Idaho Falls Regional Airport, two miles from downtown, and also home to the Museum of Idaho. The pictures I saw of the downtown area looked quite inviting and not at all scary like some downtowns that I've been to. (laughs) I didn't feel like I was going to get murdered. It was nice. The falls portion of Idaho Falls comes from the little, and from what I can tell, man-made waterfall in Snake River. You can also walk along or bike along the river as there is a trail there. Wikipedia told me that it was extensive, but would not give me any mileage, so fuck you, Wikipedia. I was hoping to do something different with my intro and give like a list of famous people from Idaho Falls, but there's really only one some people might know, and that's Martha Raddatz, who is the chief global affairs correspondent for ABC News. Um, if you say so. Yeah, I know. I didn't really know her that much either. I was like, maybe? That's a strong maybe. As far as things to do here go, other than the museum I mentioned and the walking and biking trails along the river, there's also the Idaho Falls Zoo, which the internet showed with a cute picture of some red pandas, because who doesn't love red pandas? And also the Art Museum of Eastern Idaho which has a lot of art from local artists, which is cool, as well as a kids-friendly area with plenty of activities. The reason for our stop in Idaho Falls today, however, is definitely not for kids. This is the story of Rita Roundy and Betty Gray. Mm, I'm excited. Now, I almost didn't do this story because I was certain I was going to mess up and call Rita Roundy Ronda Rousey. I was afraid the internet would suddenly be swirling with rumors of the murder of Ronda Rousey, but hopefully I will not do that. Yeah, you don't want to start a fake rumor. You don't want to start a hoax, Eden. But also, I had the same feeling because I came across a brief uh, mention of of them as a uh, very interesting true crime case. Yeah. So I'm glad I backed away, but also I backed away because of that very same reason. I'm like, I'm going to call this poor woman Ronda Rousey the entire exactly. time. <laughs> exactly. So... Ronda Rousey, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Our story starts on July 24th, 1989, when a man named Leroy Levitt called 911 and said he just walked into the scene of a double homicide. He said he was going to pick Rita up and take her to the airport when he found her dead in her home along with her friend, Betty Gray. Police said that he was hysterical on the phone and needed to be calmed down. He told police he rang the doorbell and no one had answered, so he walked around the back of the property, and the back door, which was one of the sliding glass ones, Mm -hmm. was open. 
He yelled for Rita, but no one answered before going inside and stumbling upon the crime scene. It was apparent why Leroy was so freaked out when he called 911. Not only were two of his friends dead on the floor, but there were 18 red, now burnt out, candles on the stove in the kitchen. They were in a U-shape with six on the left, six in the middle, and six on the right. And in the center, when what appeared to be in blood, was written, Satan loves you. Uh, okay, that's fucking beyond creepy. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole reason I wanted to do this damn story. One of the police on the scene, Detective Rodriguez, was actually an expert in satanic murders. So the setup of the 18 candles being 666 was not lost on him. Wait, they just happen to have a satanic murders expert on their police force? Apparently. I mean, what the hell is happening? I know. I know it was an interesting place. That Hell's Canyon, Eden. That's how the demons get in. It is. Yes. It actually plays into my story. No, it doesn't. (laughs) Sorry to disappoint. (laughs) So looking at the crime scene, however, it was nothing like what Rodriguez was expecting to find. 49-year-old Rita was in the bedroom upstairs, in bed, looking down with one shot to the head. He said she looked rather peaceful and like she was sleeping. The body of 47-year-old Betty Gray was in the guest bedroom, and just like Rita, she was also lying in bed. However, she was face down and also looked almost like she was sleeping, and she had been shot behind her right ear. There was no sign of any sexual assault on either victim, and both seemed as if they had been taken by surprise from the rather peaceful poses, and no bruising or scratches or any other signs that might indicate defense wounds were found. For me, this lays in stark contrast from what we think of with ritual or satanic murder. Look at the Manson family or Richard Ramirez. Victims of ritual murder or satanic murder are usually sexually violated, bloody, usually anything grisly and scary that you can think of. That's usually what goes into a murder like those. But this one is pretty clean as far as murders go. Mm-hmm. Nothing had been stolen either, so it wasn't a robbery gone wrong. The house was in complete order. Nothing turned over or out of place. The only room that was strange was the bathroom, which had some blood in it, probably from the killer washing up. And the weird part here is the toilet seat, which was up. Oh, the killer's a man. No woman yeah. would have the toilet seat up in her house. I know that much. Exactly. That leads me to immediately associate this crime with a man. I'm sure unless, you know, Rita is really talented and she is not and she's just not peeing, you know, and she's standing up to pee. Dream of dreams for girls in public restrooms, I know, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think Rita was quite that talented. There was also evidence that the killer had stuck around for a while, too, police said. He had sat in the lazy boy chair in the living room, smoked four or five cigarettes, and left a half-drunk can of Mountain Dew behind. So I don't much know... DNA everywhere. Jesus. Right? I don't Same know if satanic nowhere. murderers usually like to do the dew, but that's where we're at, I guess. It makes sense. Mountain Dew, Code Red, makes sense. It makes oh, sense. Oh, ex- exactly. Yes, I see where you're going now. Let's start the new satanic panic around Mountain Dew. <laughs> oh, yes. Christians will be up in arms and boycotting. Wonderful. <laughs> so, I mean, this is 1989, like I said. So DNA was a thing, even though it was still very much in its infancy. 
like from what I found online, 1983 to 1986 would have been the first time they used it in a criminal investigation. Mm-hmm. But you needed like large amounts back then. Yeah. And I imagine like someplace like Idaho Falls probably didn't jump into that DNA. Exactly. Research. I mean, it's probably going to be super expensive back then, too. Oh, yeah. And I mean, even nowadays, like most police stations don't have like a lab. They need to send it out. And that takes forever sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unless it's like a super high profile murder case, it's going to take a while to get that DNA. Mm-hmm. It's not like the movies and the books. I wish it were, but it's not. Uh, there weren't any fingerprints that could be lifted from the soda can, however, which was a really big bummer. Um, there wasn't much physical evidence to collect at all, in fact, but they did find one bullet in Rita's wall, which was a 9 mil. Just like me, Rodriguez knew this was not an authentic ritual murder because this guy had cleaned up after himself and was super careful, which, like I said, not really seen in a ritual murder. Plus, like, there's, like, very few ritual murders. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like... yeah. It doesn't really happen a lot. Exactly. The panic is... is but this was the 80s, the height of satanic I panic. I know. I know it. It's like, what a good red herring to toss in there as, like, an evil murderer. I will never forget that damn Tom Hanks movie it was called like Monsters and Mazes or something like that. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. about that kid that, you know, got um, lost and, in the sewer and murdered people. Yeah. And my mom was convinced that I would not that I was not allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons because I would become possessed by demons. So I know all about the satanic panic. Whereas my mom was like, no, it's fine. They play Dungeons and Dragons. It grows their imagination. There's no Satan in this book. <laughs> Well, your mom was a smart lady. Obviously, this was someone smart and careful and not a robber, not a random crazy. It had to be someone one or both of the women knew. But with the double homicide angle here, which one was the intended victim? One or both? Police weren't sure, but they knew they had to find that out first. I almost wonder if it's Rita. I mean, it's her house after all. It is her house, that's true. But, I mean, Rita and Betty were very good friends. So people could also think, you know, where Rita goes, Betty follows. Mm. So who knows? But before I can continue on with the investigation, I need to talk about something equally as horrible as the murders itself, which is how the news was broken. Rita's children were grown and living all over the country at this point, and her son Paul was actually told of his mother's death through a teleprinter. So, kind of like receiving a fax. Oh my god. For modern day cases, I guess this the equivalent would be like the police texting you and saying, guess what, buddy? Your mom's dead. Sorry, okay, thanks, bye. Yeah. Really fucked up. So yeah, I think that that is beyond fucked up. And I understand that you can't go in person if they aren't in the area. But a phone call for all, like, yeah. come on. It's not like phones didn't exist in 1989. Well, the, pro- the problem is it's like when you call on the phone, then they can ask questions. That's true. Maybe be a human and comfort them. That's true. Yeah. So Paul couldn't believe it and asked if it was a joke. And I do not blame him one bit. To avoid further horribleness on behalf of the police in this situation, Paul drove 45 miles uh, to at least let his sister know in person. Betty's daughter, Sarah, was at least told in person by police, which is good. 
She was unfortunately pregnant at the time with her second child, which makes it kind of worse for me somehow, though. Like, finding that news out when you're pregnant, probably not good for the baby or for you. Mm-hmm. And what truly makes this worse is the fact that Sarah hadn't been able to tell her mom she was pregnant yet. In the interview that I saw with her, she said that she told it to her body bag, which is just really disturbing yeah. and sad. That's horrible. Yeah. It kind of broke my heart watching the show that I watched for my research because there were lots of family members talking and they all said that both women were the nicest people that you could meet. Apparently, Betty was known around town as the cake lady because she would always bake cakes for people, which is my kind of lady for sure. You can easily win my heart with baked goods. So going back to the investigation, the killer although not leaving a lot of clues, he did unintentionally leave one that helped establish a timeline. The red candles he had staged gave police a clue as they purchased the same candles and let them burn to see how long it would take for each one to burn out, which turned out to be about three to four hours. And the wax on the burnt out ones was still warm when they arrived at the scene, leaving police to think the time of the murders would have been two or three in the morning. Hmm. The other clue that was left behind was a bicycle tire track outside, and neither Rita or Betty were into biking or even owned a bike. Honestly, biking to the crime scene is not the worst idea that I've ever heard, because it would be quieter and less you know, conspicuous than a car. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when making a list of suspects, Leroy Levitt, was on that list since he found the bodies and killers do love to return to the scene of the crime. And he had said that he had visited with them the night before, so he could be placed at the scene. So early on, he was the main suspect, and this is exactly why I'm afraid of witnessing a murder or reporting one. I want to do the right thing and get the victim justice, but I don't really want to be a suspect just for doing the right thing. In the immortal words of Sweet Brown, Ain't nobody got time for that. <clears throat> there may have been more merit to the Leroy theory, however, as it came to light that Leroy and Betty were having an affair for a year and a half. <gasps> yeah. He made no mention of this to police whatsoever. They found this out when digging into things a bit and found cards that he had sent to her and a safety deposit box, which had money for them to, I guess, run away together with. I probably would be, you know, apprehensive to tell the police this information as well. Though, because it would look make me look more guilty, I would probably still tell them, just because it's better to find out from me than find out from someone else. Because then you're going to look worse. Mm-hmm. This prompted him to take a, and subsequently fail, a lie detector test. But he did have an alibi, which he gave them after this stating that he had been at home with his wife, which was then confirmed. I don't know what this did to the state of their marriage, but he was soon scratched off the suspect list. There was, however, another viable option for their prime suspect, in the form of a man named J.W. Dyer. And I don't know if they found out about him after having their hearts set on Leroy Levitt, but if not, then my money would have been on Dyer from the start, since this guy has bad news written all over him. Before coming to Idaho, Rita had been living in New Mexico, 
And that's where she met J.W. Dyer. And he was completely obsessed with her and had been stalking her for years. Hmm. He had access to guns and could easily have been the one to do this. Rita had changed numbers many times and he would just magically already have the new one and would continue harassing her. And this didn't stop just because she moved to Idaho. There was even a witness who said they heard Dyer tell Rita he was going to kill her, which is a huge red flag. Uh, yeah. I mean, suspect at number one immediately. Exactly. They end up finding Dyer, who apparently was living in Oregon, and he openly admitted to police that he had threatened to kill Rita. But of course, he said he didn't mean it. Yeah, I said I would kill her. I was just joking. She can't take a joke. (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) Bitches be tripping. He said he wasn't anywhere near Idaho Falls and was at home in Oregon at the time of the murder, which prompted police to yet again pull out the magical device to end all devices, the polygraph. But guess what? He passed. And they crossed him off the list as well, since local police were able to confirm that he had not left the state. Okay. So that's a really good suspect. Gone. I mean, the polygraph was is junk, but like the, yeah. the Oregon State Police, like, no, no, he was here, y'all. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I trust them to have done their jobs, yeah. hopefully. Guess what? I'm drinking Mountain Dew. <laughs> Satan worshiper! I just realized that. <laughs> well, okay. So they then began to look into more recent people in their lives. Rita had been dating a guy who lived in Washington State named Hugh Riley. They'd been together for a while at this point, and her kids said that she really loved him. Something did happen to bring him into question and make him a damn good suspect for all of this as well, though. When Rita and Hugh started dating, he had told her that he was divorced, but she then found out that that was not at all true and he was very much still married. And she called his wife the night before she died to let her know about the affair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-oh. Girl. Girl, you in danger. Exactly. Yes. Thanks, Whoopi. <laughs> uh, so obviously this brings the wife in as a suspect, too, because who's to say she wasn't overcome with jealousy? Mm-hmm. My money, however, would still be on the man doing this based solely on that toilet seat being up, though. Oh, yeah. The toilet seat. That's right. Yeah, although, since Leroy was over the previous night, if no one else had used the toilet, I guess, you know, that could be a thing, too. Yeah, maybe it was just up. Yeah, because Leroy, I didn't think about that. But also. I always put the toilet seat down. I always put it back down. But whoever did it, did not, because they're a bad boy. (laughs) This time around, the mighty lie detector was actually not even used. Because this lead died out pretty quickly when both husband and wife had been at a family birthday party during the time of the murders in Washington. Uh, This is getting more complicated. Every time I think they have somebody who's like clearly going to be the murderer. It's like, nope, sorry, they have an alibi. Every time it's like, it's it's definitely like, you clearly did this. I just don't. Oh, oh, never mind. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely a weird one here. And just when it seemed like every lead was drying up faster than a menopausal woman's naughty bits, police received a call from a hospital security guard with a weird story that he thought might be connected to these murders. 
He said he saw a man at 3 a.m. on the morning of the murder putting a bike into a green International Harvester travel-all, which, for those like me who don't know what the hell that is, it's an old SUV, which was the rival of the Chevy Suburban, made between 1953 and 1957. Okie dokie. Yeah, basically, we should not feel bad about not knowing what that car is since we were hella not born yet and (laughs) our parents were still freaking kids. (laughs) The security guard said the man hid in the car when he saw him coming, which is, in Among Us terms, sus. (laughs) He said this guy was sweating and very suspicious, but he had put it out of his mind until he heard about the homicide. Then everything started to click for him. This is very promising since they did find those tire marks from a bike outside the house. And I don't know if that was made public or not. Um, He said that the man was in his 50s with grayish black hair. The bike was interesting, too, because he said it was a girl's bike with a wool seat. And the man also had a backpack with him. They had him sit down with a sketch artist and give a description of the man he had seen that night, and what they saw on the page was shocking. It was someone they immediately recognized. William Gray, Betty's husband. Uh Uh-oh. The man had also had a medical alert bracelet, which William, or Bill, as he had been called, also wore. During my research, After the affair thing came out, I was wondering why they weren't looking into him immediately afterward, but I guess there were some other suspects that seemed pretty good, obviously. Um, But it goes back to the, you know, it's always the husband thing. Mm -hmm. So happy to be single. There were also a few good reasons for them to think Bill had nothing to do with this, though, because Bill was not in good shape physically. So they didn't really think that he could bike a considerable distance. And he was also recovering from a kidney transplant at that time. Oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe the sick husband isn't your first lead. Yeah, true. Police decided to do a photo lineup with a security guard. And yet again, he identified William Gray as the man he had seen. William and Betty owned a pawn shop together, and police contacted the local police where William and Betty lived in Wyoming and asked them to go by the shop and see if there was a green travel-all parked outside anywhere. I should also add that the car did have Wyoming plates, adding even more credibility to this theory. Surely enough, the car was there, and the detective took pictures for the police in Idaho. Police saw in the pictures... A woman's bicycle with a wool seat inside the vehicle. Another damning bit of information was that Bill was a smoker of menthol cigarettes like the ones found in Rita's house. Bill denied having anything to do with it, said that he was home that night and didn't know anything about the affair. Police thought this was total BS and they continued to dig. I don't know why they didn't pull out the trusty lie detector, but you know. Not this time, Eden. Not this time. (laughs) Exactly. This is going to be like lie detector, the story. (laughs) So they believed money to be the motive for the crime, as if Betty would have divorced Bill, she would have gotten 50% of everything, and Bill did not like to lose money. Oh, and he also had a secret life insurance policy taken out on Betty, which she had known nothing about, totaling a quarter of a million dollars. 
Oh my god, that's not even a red flag. That's like a red banner. Like he exactly, hired a skywriter. Yes. Like I killed my wife. Yeah, there's 20 arrows that say yes, please arrest me. <laughs> All of this was obviously very damning, but there was no physical evidence and there was no murder weapon. Bill did own guns, but he did not have a gun matching the one that killed Rita and Betty. They could not bring him to trial at this point, but there was something else that could be done. His children and their aunt filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Bill and won, Mm? which then put enough pressure on the district attorney to reopen the case and prosecute him for the murders. That's super interesting. Oh, yeah. And we've discussed this before, and we know that it is hard to get a conviction without a murder weapon. What they have is severely damning, and at this point, there is no one else I can see doing this. But how many times have we also said that when looking at this story? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the evidence is circumstantial. Uh, but even with as circumstantial as the evidence was, it swayed jurors enough to convict Bill of two counts of first-degree murder. And he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. Bill tried to appeal in 1997, but was denied uh, with his lawyer stating the jury was swayed by media coverage and that the jury was not told about the death threats from Dyer. He died in prison in 2010 after serving roughly 20 years. And that is the end of my story. Whew, man, I, uh, that had more twists and turns than right a pasta salad. I don't even know. I just... <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of a lot of red herrings. Like first, there's the Satanism. Then there's the stalker. Then there's the man having the affair. The man's wife. It's just oh my god, that's kind of crazy. And then it all comes down to basically greed and an unhappy marriage. Exactly. Yes. And it was funny when when watching the episode that I watched, everyone was like, I just don't know who would want to hurt my mother. You know. And all this mm-hmm. stuff like that. They're all just like, she was just so nice. And no one, she had no enemies at all. I don't know. With this suspect list, it seems like there was enemies. No enemies at all, except for that fuck, that guy she was fucking <laughs> and his wife. Like, yeah, except yeah. for that and the stalker. And the, yeah. yeah. I know. It's exactly. crazy. Everyone yeah. loved my mom. Maybe a little too much. Exactly. Yes. I mean, yeah, they seemed like wonderful, beautiful women, and I'm sure they were, but the fact remains they did have enemies because there was a shit ton of suspects. Yeah, Normally when we do these stories, there might be like one or two other like good mm-hmm. suspects, mm-hmm. but that's it. And this one had a lot of suspects, all of them seeming pretty good for it. Yeah, I agree. This is definitely not one of those like, there were no suspects. I'm like, or they, they had no enemies situations. Like They, they definitely uh, were not in that category. <laughs> exactly yes well thanks for sharing this story Eden it's very very entertaining uh, very unique I think yeah uh, I'm really glad that I did this one and um, I'm glad that I um, you know only additionally said Ronda Rousey once more which I'm sure we'll let it out but you know hashtag Rita not Rousey <laughs> exactly <laughs> I mean she's still pretty rowdy but you know um, so sources for this week were Wikipedia, Deseret.com, Findagrave.com, Spokesman.com, InvestigationDiscovery.com, LightOnline.com, Express.co.uk, and an episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn. 
Paula. Sorry. <laughs> oh, do you actually um, know who she is? Because I didn't. Paula's on. Yeah. She's one of my, my all-time favorite, like, you know, 90s, early 2000s reporters. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, she was pretty cool, and she was good in this episode, so I might watch more of her show. She's kind of like a like a like a Di- a Diane Sawyer type. I got that vibe. I did. Yeah. yeah. Like a Diane Sawyer for murder. Yes. Yes. Diane Sawyer for I murder. Like Paula Zahn. <laughs> um, plus, she has a great name that I like to say. It's like it's like you know Yolanda it Vega. Me of Steve's on. Steve's on. <laughs> it reminds me of Yolanda Vega, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna shout that from the rooftops. Anyway. Okay. So I guess we will take a short break and then we'll be back. I have a spooky set of tales I think that y'all will enjoy. Ooh, sounds fun. And we are back. I unfortunately do not have a news story for you this week because I totally forgot to find one. But don't you worry because Nicole and I are cooking up something good for you next week since Nicole just has this crazy travel schedule all the time. Nicole, stop being so popular. (laughs) So we're going to do another refuel and it's going to be fun and you're going to like it. I will make you like it, damn it. (laughs) Oh, Eden, you know I love it when you threaten me. (laughs) Exactly. Uh... So I'm going to dive straight into my paranormal stories, and I hope you all like it. Today, we're heading to Pocatello, the county seat of and the largest city in Bannock County in southeastern Idaho, with a population of roughly 50,000 residents and an area of about 32 square miles, Pocatello is the fifth largest city in Idaho, and it sits along a tributary of the Snake River called Potnuf River, near where the river emerges from the mountains and into the Snake River Plain. I was about to say that, you know, our locations are probably very close to each other once I heard of where in Idaho it was. And yes. now you mentioned the Snake River. So, yep, definitely close by. Yes, they, they, it is relatively in the same neighborhood in, in Idaho. Uh, and I had to say Potnuf for the river just because i'm sure it's pronounced like point neff because you know how french gets butchered by the american oh yeah tongue, so la framboise yes yes i'm gonna go with point neuf and uh take it from there uh this area of southeastern idaho has been inhabited by the shoshone and the bannock indigenous tribes for hundreds of years uh the first time europeans really came to the area was in 1805 when lewis and clark traversed the area and reported back that the area was very rich in resources, which, of course, drew more and more Europeans and Americans to the area, especially those involved in the fur trade. The first permanent settlement in the area was established at Fort Hall in 1834 by Nathaniel Wyeth, who had left his home in Massachusetts to pursue, hopefully, a more lucrative career in fur trading out west. But this probably wasn't the best time to set up shop as a fur trader since overtrapping was pretty rampant and there had recently been a shift in fashion away from fur to silk. So that kind of signaled the beginning of the end of the fur industry in Northern America. But luckily, the folks who had also come to join Nathaniel Wyeth in Fort Hall uh, were helped out by its location to the the Portneuf River and transformed it into a supply stop for travelers who, especially those who were on the Oregon Trail. Uh, Insert your dysentery joke here now. Of course. (laughs) 
Although thousands of settlers passed through Idaho along the Oregon Trail, it really wasn't until gold was discovered in the 1860s that settlers actually began stopping in Idaho in large numbers. The gold rush brought all the usual trappings, quick boom towns, the need for goods and services, uh, as well as some of the crime, like prostitution and opium dens that we often see around boom towns. Yep. Happens a lot. Yep, yep. However, it was a benefit for the area that eventually became Pocatello, and the Portneuf River Valley really did blossom at this point, because when gold rushes come, so does additional stage and freight lines. And that's what happened for Pocatello as well. Uh, The coming of the railroad really provided a better way for this area of Idaho to develop its mineral resources as well. After all, it's the gem state. There's lots of mining opportunities aside from gold there. Now, once the trains and the stagecoaches came to the area, it was renamed Pocatello Junction after a local Shoshone chief who had granted the railroad the right of way through the Fort Hall Indian Reservation. And it became a really important transportation crossroads for the Union Pacific Railroad as it expanded its service into the Pacific Northwest. After the gold rush played out, like they always do, some of the folks remained behind and they turned to agriculture. Uh, With the help of irrigation from the nearby Snake River, the region really became a huge supplier of grain, potatoes, and other crops. Yay, potatoes! Finally, potatoes in Idaho! That's um, all I wanted from this story. <laughs> um, with, this, with the growth of agriculture, residential and commercial development also started to ramp up. So that by the 1880s, there was enough oomph behind Pocatello to make it officially a city. It was incorporated in 1889 and quickly became known as the Gateway to the Northwest. There's so Ooh, many gateways fancy. out west. So many gateways. I know, right? <laughs> we find them all, Eden. We find them all. So in 1901, there was another boom for Pocatello. The Academy of Idaho was founded there, and eventually that school would go on to become Idaho State University. Today, Idaho State University is a public research university with more than 12,000 students and more than 200 programs spanning the fields of healthcare, nuclear research, teaching, humanities, the arts, engineering, hard sciences, technology, business, so many things you can get at Idaho State University in terms of a degree. Uh, The university is also one of the largest employers in Pocatello, and Pocatello is also home to several corporate headquarters, such as the Farm Bureau Insurance, Varsity Tractors. Uh, There's a location for um, semiconductors, Peterson Incorporated, uh, Great Western Malting, Amy's Kitchen, among others. So all in all, Pocatello, for being a smaller city, has a pretty thriving economy. Uh, It's been recognized by Forbes magazine as one of the best places for small businesses for six years in a row, and it's ranked number two on the Forbes Cost of Doing Business Index. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. And it's not just the economy and good jobs that are available in Pocatello. It's also a nice place to raise a family, too. Uh, It's been cited as one of the top 10 small places to move and raise a family, according to Primary Relocation and World ERC. It's also hailed as one of the top cities in the U.S. to retire to, according to AARP, and it's one of the best small cities in America in an article by NerdWallet. NerdWallet. I like that. I don't know what it is, but I like it already. 
It's it's a good website. It's all about financing for the most part. <laughs> okay. That's not as fun as I thought it would be. It'll but... teach you how to make the most of your credit card points, though, so that's not nothing. Ooh, okay. <laughs> now, if the name Pocatello rings a bell for you, that could be because the city pops up occasionally in pop culture, and then more recently in the true crime and paranormal world. So I know Pocatello because it's a weird name that you don't hear very often, but I remember it from A Star is Born. The best one, the one with Judy Garland in it. Sorry, Lady Gaga. We'll talk later. I was about to say, there's like five of those movies. (laughs) You need to tell me which one it is. (laughs) I'm a big fan of the Judy Garland one because I love Judy Garland so much. And one of the lines uh, uh, that she sings, I know, it's super gay. Um, (laughs) In one of the songs, she sings about being born in a trunk at the Princess Theater in Pocatello, Idaho. Um, So that's one of the things that always jumps out to me whenever I see that, that town name, Pocatello. I've never seen any of those movies, by the way. Oh, we're having a night. We're just going to watch all of them in rapid succession like my roommates made me do with the Harry Potter movies. (laughs) You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll hate me in the end. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I already hate you. I can't hate you any more than I already do. Perfect. I'm going to burn the popcorn, too. (laughs) Uh, Pocatello also has been uh, the location of several TV series episodes. Like they did an episode of Food Truck Wars from season four in Pocatello. Um, And its town flag reached a pretty high level of notoriety in the early 2010s. So it was dubbed the worst city flag in America by 99% invisible podcast host Roman Mars. That's rude. Well, even better is that Mars went on to feature the flag as part of his 2015 TED Talk about good design choices. I need to look up this flag now. (laughs) Spoiler alert. uh, Pocatello's flag breaks all the rules of good design. I will actually send you the Pocatello flag because I feel like you'll be like, what is what in the 90s is happening? Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. It's so it looks literally like a flag oh. that was designed at the same time as the like the the whoosh cups. And it yeah. says proud to be Pocatello. And then it has these like almost like very like chark I don't know how you would describe it, like With the Purple Mountains majesty that you have there. Different fonts, different sizes, like five different colors. It's very, very late eighties, early nineties design. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. But uh, now that you've seen that horrendous flag, Eden, I I want you to not worry because apparently they finally got their shit together and they released a delightful new flag in 2017 in response to the criticism they faced. And it is very, um, it is very state flaggy. It's actually one of the nicer state flags or city flags I think I've ever seen. Excuse me. I'll send you. That's good because before I was like, that's rude. And then I saw it and I was like, that's warranted. That's rude, but also not wrong. Okay, so it's that second one that pulled up on Google Images. Yes, where it's a very clean, very, like, three colors. It's very clear that it's mountains. Yeah, so that's now the Pocatello city flag. Although with that star, it's reminding me of Bethlehem. A little bit, a little bit. Although I did think it was so funny that, like, that's, like, if you Google Pocatello, like, that comes up, that TED Talk. And I'm like, okay, TED Talk, stars born, what's not to love? Well, what's not to love is the fact that Pocatello also pops up in some recent true crime <laughs> things that I've oh, no. learned about. You remember? Do you remember the, that documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight? I think we talked about it for quite a bit. 
how can anyone ever forget <laughs> Abducted in Plain Sight? I'm sorry. <laughs> that The documentary that leaves you wondering what you just watched and that you have to pause every, I'd say, three minutes to be like, what the fuck is going on? What is wrong with everybody? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For anybody who is listening who has not watched it, one, I encourage you to watch it. It's available on Netflix, I believe. And two, oh it God. is about the kidnappings, not well, not kidnapping, kidnappings of Jan Broberg Felt, who was a teenager living in Pocatello and was abducted by her neighbor slash family friend, Robert Berktold, in the 1970s on two separate occasions. Wait, it's a crazy, that's, crazy that's story. That's where it takes place? Yep, it takes place in Pocatello. Oh my God, okay. And if that wasn't nutty enough, Pocotello was again in the news for a vicious murder. Uh, in 2006, high school student Cassie Joe Stoddart was viciously murdered by two classmates in this really sad, unfortunate, and fucked up attempt to reenact some of the infamy of the Scream franchise. Oh, uh, they, yeah. Do you remember that where they basically like went over, hung out at the house with her and her boyfriend, yeah. and they snuck downstairs, unlocked the the basement, and then after her boyfriend left, they came back and like tried to lure her to the basement by making spooky sounds, and eventually she ignored it and fell asleep, and they like stabbed her to death. It yeah, was super, super sad and fucked up. I love um, that movie, but I don't love what happened there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that also took place in Pocatello. But... I really buried the lead here, and I'm sorry because I was just so tickled by all the randomness of Pocatello. But it's also known as the most haunted city in Idaho. Wow. Okay. It's been featured on Ghost Hunters, and it turns out that its history as a stopping point along the Oregon Trail and the, as a gold rush town has really led to kind of some seedier and bloody goings on in its history. I feel like that does not surprise anybody because like the gold <laughs> rush towns always have ghosts, it seems, because there's yep. always like really unsavory things going on. Yeah, it's funny because they're they're relatively young cities and towns, but because of that unsavory history, it's it's just nuts. Yeah. So let's swing into some of the top paranormal hotspots in Pocatello and poke around for a bit. Poking some Pocatello. <laughs> so first up, Pocatello High School. The high school is considered one of the most haunted places in town, and I'd venture to say it could even be considered the most haunted high school in the nation. Wow, okay. Yeah, both faculty and staff agree there is something off about the building. It's very spooky, not only after hours, but also during school hours. Uh, toilets will randomly flush, doors mysteriously slam shut. Um, some people have even reported like feeling a creepy presence following them around the hallway. And Gross. it's not that weird overgrown junior who's like, you know, <laughs> trying to get a date. Disgusting. Thank you. Disgusting. Gross. Uh, Pocatello High was constructed in 1892. But in 1914, the school burned to the ground and had to be rebuilt. Since the rebuilding, there have been reports of the uneasy feelings. Uh, one of the most distinct ghosts that is rumored to inhabit the school is that of a ghost who supposedly killed herself. Um, her suicide took place at some point between 1930 and 1950. And they believe that the girl was part of a suicide pact with her friend. And when the girl and her friend decided to go forward with the suicide pact, the friend backed out and the girl unfortunately hung herself from her locker. 
Now the girl's angry spirit haunts the school halls. Uh, People say they can smell a very strong scent of the girl's favorite perfume lingering in the air at random times. Others claim to have seen an apparition of a young, confused, and sometimes angry-looking girl wandering the hallways. Hmm, okay. Although I wasn't able to confirm the story of a girl killing herself at Pocatello High during those years, there have been at least six confirmed deaths at Pocatello High since oh, 1914. Yeah. That's so, crazy. Okay. Yeah, it's it's like, I know death happens everywhere, but like six deaths at a high school kind of randomly is, is a little surprising. That's a lot for a high school, you know, because you think most of the people in the building are of an age where they don't usually die of natural causes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there was a story that popped up in 2014. And that's when a spooky video clip of the security footage from Pocatello High went viral. So this video footage was taken during the school's winter break, when not a single person was supposed to be in the building. However, the video definitely shows a clear, mysteriously shadowy figure moving in and out of a bathroom, towards a bench, and then walking down a hallway. When Meanwhile, the hallway's lights kind of flicker off and on, and the figure is kind of transparent. It almost looks like um, something invisible on the film that's kind of human-shaped, but it moves like a human. It's super creepy. If you ever feel like Googling or searching the internet for ghosts caught on camera, chances are this viral clip from Pocatello High will pop up. Well, who was recording it if no one was in the school? It was the security footage. Okay, gotcha. They still had the security cameras on. So this viral clip caught the attention of several media outlets, and it led to the high school being featured uh, in the 2019 reboot of Ghost Hunters on A&E. So the Ghost Hunters went out there to check it out because of that piece, piece of video footage. So super creepy. Uh, high school like i was kind of like blown away because everyone's like oh the high school's weird after hours but i'm like and then there's this ghost of the girl who killed themselves and then stuff popping up on camera just like oof no thanks high school's rough enough yeah exactly (laughs) and i'm always super um skeptical about the stories in buildings where like this person committed suicide in the basement and blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm, i'm always mm -hmm. very much like did they though are there records Oh yeah, you every know. every school has like the kid who killed themselves. A lot of universities have that. Yep. Um, and it kind of speaks volumes about how sad it is that that happens frequently enough <laughs> that people are like, yeah. "Oh yeah, yeah, definitely exactly. someone killed themselves there." But yeah. So moving on to the next stop in Pocatello, let's let's clear the air. Literally, let's get outside, enjoy some nature. We're gonna head to Cherry Spring Nature Reserve. Now, Cherry Springs is a very popular park. It's a place that has lovely trails, pavilions, beautiful scenery, uh, lots of bright colors. It's very bright and airy. Looking at some of the photos online, it's like, I would like to go to there. So it's a little wonder that that Sherry Springs Nature Reserve has become a really popular spot for family outings. It's where folks go to get their senior photos taken. And it's also a great location to probably take somebody on a first date where you're just going to go for a nice walk and chat. You know, a walk and talk. That works for me. Nature's fun. Nature is fun. Until the lights go down and night falls. 
And that's when the eeriness begins at Cherry Springs Nature Reserve. The park kind of transforms into a hotspot for paranormal encounters. Uh, many My people... office transformed into a hotspot because I don't have my air on. <laughs> You're melting. I am melting. <laughs> uh, they... The area uh, in the park, it's known to have really high electromagnetic levels, which means that after the activity of daytime has kind of simmered down and evening falls, people left in the park say they feel like they're being watched and they just get this real deep sense of uneasiness. Well, that's disgusting. Thank you. (laughs) It's not a man in the bushes. It's something else. Um, I immediately thought about some of the things we've talked about, how certain vibrations and sounds can trigger fear responses. And that's kind of kind of what it sounds like here. Um, Several local paranormal investigators have gone out to the park to track the EV uh, EMF and just see how intense the electromagnetic field is. And it's super high. Oh, wow. High to the point where they actually are able to capture really interesting images on camera. Uh, The images are distorted. The film tends to um, have a lot of what you would see in like typical ghost photography. Um, so orbs, uh, some say images of various apparitions like outlines, uh, squiggles, things like that, where it almost looks like a, like a humanoid figure have appeared on film that has been captured at the park at night specifically. Huh. But here's the crazy thing about Pocatello. Remember, it's the most haunted city in Idaho. and Cherry Springs isn't the only haunted park there. Oh, God, there's more haunted parks. There's more. Like, I don't know what their parks and recreation department is doing, but either they're doing something incredibly right or incredibly wrong. I can't tell. Well, when April's in charge, you know, it's going to be spooky. (laughs) Muy caliente. (laughs) My mother is Puerto Rican, which is why I'm so colorful and lively. If we head over to Ammon's Park, we may just encounter another ghostly girl. In the daytime, Ammon's Park is pretty much like any other park you'd expect to find in a city the size of Pocatello. Uh, there's lots of walking paths, there's lots of trees and open lawns for picnicking, and there's a really good-sized playground that lots of local families enjoy. But once the sun sets and the park closes down, Uh, The Ammons Park Playground becomes the stomping ground of an entity that many residents have reported seeing over the years. Why is stuff involving kids always so creepy? It's just the nature of it. I think it's just it it hits that like special part of like extra creepy because you're kind of drawn to kids. You want to make sure you see a kid by themselves. You want to make sure they're okay, But then you realize they could be something more malicious. Yeah. I think that's why they're so creepy. Yeah, exactly. So. Some nights, residents who have passed through the park say they see a sad-looking little girl in a blue dress sitting on the playground swing. Locals believe that she may have been murdered in the park years ago, and that's why she lingers. She's been sighted wandering around the swing sets at nights, but usually disappears once someone sees her or tries to go over to her. The swings in the playground are often seen moving by themselves as well, and not oh, the normal, no. yeah, not the normal movement of like, oh, the wind's blowing. They will see the swings full on swinging back and forth at night, almost like there's invisible children playing on them. Creepy as hell. Okay. Just like all playgrounds, the swings are always the most popular things to play with, even after death. <laughs> uh, the Erias in Emmons Park 
is also shared in a popular story that locals also tell about not going to the park at night. It's kind of a deterrent story. And the story goes along that uh, two boys and some of their friends were playing in the park at night. They'd snuck out. They were playing flashlight tag. Um, some kind of hide-and-go-seek game like that. The two boys decided it would be a great idea to hide in the utility shed. They enter the utility shed, and all of a sudden, the door slams and locks itself. It wasn't until the boys' friends heard them screaming for help that they were able to locate them and unlock the door from the outside. So the kids very much feel that there was something that locked them in there and not a creepy Ooh, landscaper. no. <laughs> they think it may have been a ghost. So, Eden, if the haunted school and parks from hell weren't enough for you, we have one final stop in our haunted tour of Pocatello. Okay, let's go. And true to form, it is going to be touching on one of the most terrifying cryptids I have ever fucking heard of. Oh, okay, a terrifying cryptid. Usually they're kind of cute and cuddly in my experience. I don't know. This is literally the diametric opposite of, of that. Okay, well, now now that I won't be able to sleep tonight, go ahead. <laughs> so in, in an area of Pocatello uh, called Massacre Rocks, it's a like a body cheery of name. water. Yeah, cheery name. It's a it's like a like a offshoot. It's a watershed of of the Port Neuf River. It's called Massacre Rocks. They have an entity there called Water Babies. Water Babies. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Water Babies, Eden? No. It sounds like candy, though. It does. Or like some some kind of like splashy for the pool. <laughs> yeah. Well, these fuckers are absolutely terrifying. Not cute at all. Uh, it's a creature from Native American folklore, and they are small, childlike creatures that live in the waters near reservations, and it's very common in Western, uh, Western American, Native American folklore. They are often either depicted as these relatively innocuous trickster creatures that are up for causing a little mischief here or there, or they're vicious murderers with a taste for human flesh. Oh, cheery. Mm-hmm. Oh, and even more creepy, they mimic the sound of a child's scream. Uh, no. To try to lure humans into water so they can drag them to the bottom and eat them. Oh, fuck that. Yeah, great! You know what we hate? <laughs> baby ghosts. You know what we hate even more? Fucking water babies. <laughs> and screaming baby ghosts. It's everything that's horrible. Mm-hmm. Like I said, terrifying cryptid. <laughs> yeah, you weren't, like, lying or exaggerating at all. So how did these creepy fuckers end up in Pocatello? Well, according to local legend, one year a terrible famine overtook the land of the Shoshone Native Americans. They couldn't feed themselves and they absolutely could not feed any new mouths. So the tribes came together and agreed that any newborns would be sacrificed. The mothers of the tribe were forced to take any newborn babies they had and drown them in the local lake and river. A popular spot was, you guessed it, Massacre Rocks. Oh. Now, it's said that the babies that were drowned changed. They grew tails and fins and gills. That they had somehow survived the famine by feasting on tadpoles and small fish within the waters around the reservation. But now, these spirit baby waterfuckers can be seen playing in canals and rivers around the Shoshone-Bennock Reservation. It says that sometimes they'll scream to lure unsuspecting humans to their death. Other times, they laugh. Like oh, no, that's even worse. So in summary, 
If you're ever near a body of water in the western United States that happens to be near Native American land, and you maybe hear children laughing or screaming, approach with caution. I'm just saying, I don't want you to get eaten by a water baby. Avoid all children. In general, you know what? Everywhere. Just everywhere. Avoid children. <laughs> so that that about does it for the tour of Idaho's most haunted city, Pocatello. My God. Okay. Yeah, this place is is really, really bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Eden, would you like to visit Pocatello? I would as long as I can stay far, far away from the water. Because That's there's okay. no way I'm dealing with those stupid water babies. I mean, it has a really, really cute downtown. So, I mean, we'll just stay downtown and maybe the go to the park. downtown parks is fine. Yes. In the daytime. <laughs> nowhere near the, the water babies, the murderous, laughing, screaming babies of death. Yes. Uh, my sources for this tale were Wikipedia, onlyinyourstate.com, boisestatepublicradio.org, the City of Pocatello website, idahostatejournal.com, and weirdusa.com. Thank you, Nicole. That was mind-numbingly terrifying. <laughs> I thought you might like that one. And by like, I mean absolutely hate it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Fuck the water babies. I mean, not literally, because that's gross. But you know what I mean. <laughs> Well, I guess that brings us to the end of this episode. We'll be back soon. Until then, if you have any feedback for us or you want to check out previous episodes, you can do that in any number of ways. Uh, you can stop by our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can also send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can stop by any of our social media accounts. We are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram and Roadside Horror on Twitter. We'd also like to thank Yachtbox Designs for our logo and Emassy for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters, don't get eaten by water babies. That too. And also, <laughs> creep on creeping on.